previously on Spider Network subseries. So when America defeated or helped defeat Germany, instead of smashing Nazism, it absorbed it. The Soviets knocked over the Nazi trash can and all the rats scattered. That world and sort of our world became pretty much the same world. Like the Green Berets who later fought brutally in Vietnam were trained in that type of warfare by Otto Skorzeny, the rabid Nazi. Since Alan Dulles took over the CIA in 1953, it has essentially become a shadow government. Oh man, Nazis, South America, the CIA. At one point, Otto Skorzeny was the official European sales representative for the American company Armco Steel. Whoa, German and Spanish are separate? One of the things these shadow states need is territory in which to experiment, proving grounds. We are also dealing with a charismatic German preacher, this one named Paul Schaefer. When he was a kid, he ends up literally poking out one of his eyes. This guy's got one eye. This guy sets up a home for war widows and children and then immediately gets accused of molesting the children. Eventually, he's importing children from halfway around the world. If you were a Nazi and you were visiting Chile, you would go there instead. Josef Mengele was there. They had excellent plastic surgeons. And this guy, Michael Talley, shows up where he is involved in the assassination of a number of important figures from the Allende regime. Chile became basically an experiment in total neoliberal economic revolution. This sort of colony, this bizarro molestation farm for this one Nazi freak becomes an essential nexus point for what will reshape the entire South American continent over the 20th century. This is not a coincidence. Uh, I'm gay. You killed Naomi! Yeah, let me pray to Wotan real quick. Yeah. Please oh, let this be a good episode. Boing, 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 boing. Welcome, 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 welcome to True and On, the Spider Network. We have with us, we have with us once again, straight from the depths of hell, Michael <laughs> S. Judge from Death is Around the Corner podcast. Michael, I, I believe you are. You seem to be communicating from us from some sort of bunker deep in the uh, in the Andes. How you doing? Was heißt die Spinne? Die Spider Network. We are here, ladies and gentlemen. There should have been a uh, previously on earlier, so I'm not even going to fucking explain it to you. Um, let's talk about Colonia Dignidad. Yeah. So we left off last time, uh, we basically kind of realized as we were recording that we had way more to talk about than our allotted time uh, was giving us. I don't know how to say that. Whatever. Um, so we're back, like Brace said, and we, we kind of left off right when uh, Allende was coming to power in Chile. And this is marks an important uh, kind of not departure, but uh, like an important moment in the history of Colonia Dignidad. And I, I, I think, if, if I may, to 
this might be a, a good place to introduce sort of a certain idea of how uh, the proving ground, as, as Brace excellently put it last time, for the ideas of the fascist and Nazi post-war international expanded not merely through specific nations like Chile or Argentina or even specific regions of the world like Latin America, but through the entire world uh, and specifically the entire world uh, through the practice of war. And this is ever since you said proving ground, this is something that has been on my mind because um, one of the elements of the, the spider network of the fascist international that we didn't talk about so much last time was uh, the circle and yes. yeah. the entire French Italian kind of, you know, Western and Southern European branch of all of this. And the underground uh, transnational state, basically absolutely. Or a state without in within a state. Yes. Yes. It, it's a state that both exceeds the state and hides within the state. Mm-hmm. A- and uh, one event that I think is supremely important in the history of all this and in how these ideas develop and circulate around the world uh, is an event that other than people who specialize in, in French history or sort of uh, post-colonialism or whatever, it's not something people talk about very much. And that idea is, uh, or rather event, is what in retrospect, has come to be called the First Indochina War. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, the First Indochina War uh, marked the emergence of the Viet Minh, the, uh, the Vietnamese group dedicated to the ideas and leadership of Ho Chi Minh, uh, who was himself a sort of, kind of, I guess you would say, modified Maoist. It's, yeah, it's, I mean... Ho Chi Minh actually, not even really, I I don't ever compare him to other communist figures, really. To me, he's a Zelig type. Like, Uh. Ho Chi Minh, there is a picture of a young and rather handsome Ho Chi Minh at the founding sort of meeting of the French Communist Party. Ho Chi Minh was at the fucking Versailles conference. And, And this is like a man in his 20s. Ho Chi yeah. Minh was fought the Japanese during World War II, and of course, Ho Chi Minh led his people to victory over both the French and, well, he died during the during the American Vietnam War, but uh, he he did put them on the path to victory there. But yeah, Ho Chi Minh, I would say a a pragmatic sort of communist. Yes, incredibly effective military leader. And a civilian leader, incredibly good at getting vast masses of people, not only to follow his orders, but to uh, to be enthusiastic mm. about following his orders, you know, to love him, essentially. Yeah. And in this first Indochina war, we're talking about 1954. Uh, we're talking about the, uh, what at the time were called the Indochinese, uh, the Viet Minh, uh, fighting for independence from France. And in the course of this war, the Viet Minh develop a, a, a practice of warfare that is new to the West. And this is something we weirdly and ironically see over and over and over again throughout history. That, you know, the colonizer, the imperial power, uh, learns new methods mm. of warfare and even of what will become self-defense from the colonized and the rebel. 
and the guerrilla. You know, the, these are people who have to innovate in military terms. And so their innovations become sort of captured by the imperial powers. Mm. And in this first Indochina war, uh, the Viet Minh develop what the French come to call la guerre révolutionnaire. And uh, guerre révolutionnaire, literally revolutionary war, comes to be an incredibly important idea to the, the post-war Nazi and fascist international. Because these are people who, of course, they have lost the war that ended not very long ago. You know, they are looking for new techniques. Anything right. you can teach them that'll help, they're interested. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, and so the French go into this First Indochina War fighting essentially in uh, a style of warfare that goes all the way back to Napoleon that's mm -hmm. basically focused on taking major geographical sites, cities, essentially. And holding them. Right, and holding them. And they are baffled by the tactics of the Viet Minh because when they approach these major major cities or, or agricultural sites or whatever, Viet Minh just scatter. They don't fight. Mm -hmm. Right, right, right. And, and then the, uh, the French, they declare victory, and they leave a little detachment of troops to protect the place, and then they move onward to the next site. And then the Viet Minh essentially you know, arise out of the bushes and murder the little detachment that is left there to protect the site and say, hey, guess what? This doesn't belong to you anymore. And they combine that practice of warfare with uh, guerrilla tactics, with little terrorist attacks on, mm. you know, marching columns, mm -hmm. French soldiers. IEDs. IEDs, absolutely. And uh, with uh, psychological warfare, with pamphleteering uh, among the Vietnamese saying, essentially, the French can never win this war. So all you are doing by supporting the French is prolonging your own misery. And if you want to stop the war, you need to be on our side. Hmm. Because we will win eventually. So it's only a matter of how long you want to keep this thing going. And uh, within the sort of elite of the French military, there is a group that finds this brilliant. And a lot of members of that group are also members of the, the spider network, the fascist yes. and Nazi international, and particularly a, a group I don't think we mentioned last time, the OAS. The, uh, uh, the, the, so, the so-called secret army. Yeah, the Organisation, uh, Armée, Organisation de l'Armée Secrète. Yeah. Um, who are, are basically a kind of fascist detachment of officers from any number of sort of the highest ranking, most elite French military units, like the paratroopers and the foreign legion, you know, the paratroopers it, who, by the way, were humiliated in Vietnam yeah. uh, at the battle of Dien Bien Phu. Exactly. Yeah. Which they is fucking, sort of like the famously, the battle that kind of ended that war essentially. Where, yeah. Where the, the French were just totally outmatched by, by the Vietnamese in like a full scale, actual battle like this was an, a real pitched battle yeah and and these uh these oas men you know for in an american context it would be like sort of a combination of you know navy seals and green berets and also maybe cia people or military intelligence people so black rifle coffee <laughs> 
<laughs> exactly. People the precursor. Who, yeah, yeah, people who funded that zombie movie. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and these guys come back from what is then Indochina with this idea of a new kind of warfare that they call Guerre Revolutionnaire and that we will soon translate into you know, what we would now call both insurgency and counterinsurgency. Mm. And um, the OAS, notably, among other things, when uh, French President Charles de Gaulle uh, pulls out of Algeria in, I think it was 58, uh, they try to assassinate him. Uh, they try to assassinate him a number of times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you've ever seen the movie uh, Day of the Jackal, the opening sequence with the, the, the French politician getting in the limo and then being shot yep. at by the guys on motorcycles... That's based on one of the many attempted OAS assassinations of the goal. And in fact, there are um, a bunch of recently declassified cables from, from de Gaulle to uh, John Kennedy uh, from the early 60s saying essentially like, it happened to me. It can happen to you. <laughs> that's, that's wild, especially like, I think we touched on this on our, on our episode with, with Recluse, but a lot of people don't know there was a low grade civil war ongoing in France for, for quite a long time yeah. between at first these forces uh you know the traditional conservative forces parts of the army that backed de Gaulle and then these sort of uh well I mean de Gaulle certainly he's no angel but yeah. uh I don't but, love him or anything yeah, not a fan yeah. of de Gaulle. We're not I mean, Gaullists. We need no. to be clear. <laughs> no um, one here. But uh, but but this e almost even worse uh, group of reactionaries of the upper echelons of the military, and this this went. I mean, we're talking about bank robberies. We are talking about political assassinations. We are talking about car bombs, and this is done by members. Uh, well, professed members of the state, officials of the state, against other officials of the state. Right. I mean, it, it's 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 truly extraordinary. Um, it would be rather like if the you know the three percenters had any real power here, mm. or the oath the oath keepers had any real power. You yeah, know? and the <laughs> those um, those cables from De Gaulle to Kennedy, you know, JFK. Ever since PT one hundred nine, um, he was sort of obsessed with death. He he saw his own death coming all the time, and would joke about it in a way that made other people really uncomfortable. <laughs> And uh, one of the ways he joked about it that made someone uncomfortable was after De Gaulle sent him a cable saying, you know, watch out. He sent De Gaulle one back saying, there will never be a military coup in America. That would require a young president who had military opposition and some kind of Bay of Pigs type event. What? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, gotta give, him, gotta give him credit for being, being crafty. That's yeah, a, Jay that's a he knew 100% what was going on. That's a yeah. whole yeah. other podcast subject, but that's a whole other knew. podcast series. Yeah. 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 And, um, so anyway, the, the fascist, uh, uh, fascist allied parts of the French military come out of the end of China war with this idea of guerre revolutionnaire or insurgent and counterinsurgent warfare. And gradually, over the course of the next decade or so, this idea filters into uh, all of their contact groups across yeah. the entire spider network as mm. a way to basically fight a new kind of war. 
I mean, and- that that's that's where we get. That's I mean, you can you can see the line from that to someone like Edward Lansdale. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Lansdale was was the king of this kind of stuff. Um, I think it was in in the Philippines where where he knew uh, peasants there had superstitious fears of a type of vampire. So what mm-hmm. he would do yes, during yes. during during the counterinsurgency campaign against the the Hucks there, um, they the the American advisors and the and the the Philippines military would take bodies of people they killed and drain them of all blood, put puncture marks in their necks, and then leave them hanging from trees. Yeah, hang them upside and, down from their feet. Yeah. Exactly. And and after that, the villagers, you know, the more superstitious villagers in the area would be like, holy shit, these vampires are real. And there would be this fear that they would connect to, to the presence of the hucks there. Yes. Um, I mean, these, these sort of psi warfare things... Be a psyops. I'm for. I mean, because that's also kind of pl- what what this is as well. Uh, revolutionary warfare is sort of more advanced than that, or, or or contains more in it than that. But like you know, psyops are an important part of that, and we see that so much. I mean, we talked about this in our episode with uh with with Vin- Vincent Bevins, all this sort of like um psychological operations that the Indonesian fascist. Uh, Partook upon the populace, you know, and like yeah. all these these crazy rumors they started about you know witches and throwing people down wells and stuff like that. It's all the same same sort of sort of uh, warfare doctrine. Absolutely, yeah. I, you you can see this. I mean, almost literally, you know, uh, like it's it's a fucking you know color field promulgating across a map from mm. the Indochina War uh, until the I guess you would say the mid sixties because. One way to look at the American Vietnam War is to see it as a conflict between traditional military strategy on the one hand and this new type of guerre revolutionnaire mm. or you know insurgent and counterinsurgent warfare on the other hand. So on the the traditionalist wing, you would have something like uh Quezon. And I don't, I don't know how many people here are, you know, Vietnam historians, but basically at Quezon, at uh, the American military set up a, a kind of uh, anti-siege uh, base in a totally geographically unimportant location and mm-hmm. dared the Viet Cong to attack it, specifically because they wanted to prove that Dien Bien Phu which happened almost exactly the same way to the French in the Indo-Chinese wars, would not happen to them. That they could win a Dien Bien Phu type siege. And so for four months, you have these Marines dug in at Quezon for no particular reason, scared shitless, uh, attacked every night by uh, these massive uh, artillery pieces that were dug into the mountainsides miles away, and sometimes attacked by uh, little Viet Cong detachments that would come out Sappers along the hills. And stuff. Right, yeah, and, and fire uh, into the Marine encampments. And then after about four months, uh, they were told, hey, I guess the siege isn't coming, so apparently we won. And the entire time they were doing this, Viet Cong were getting the Tet Offensive ready. You know, right. The most destructive offensive of the entire war, and every time... There's a great scene in Full Metal Jacket about this, where Private Joker says, you know, I keep hearing rumors that something's going to happen on Tet. 
and his really confident, you know, lieutenant colonel or whatever he is goes. Tet holidays like the Fourth of July, Christmas, and New Year all rolled into one. They're never gonna attack on Tet. Yeah, I think that's a good way to position Vietnam. Actually, is that it kind of exists in this like liminal or like like um, interstitial space between. The kind of like it's not even a development, but like a, a radical transformation of modern warfare. Absolutely, you know this. This is the one side, the traditional side we talked about. On the other side, we have the development of essentially the kind of war that we fight now. You mm-hmm. know, in exactly. its early stages, uh, insurgent and counterinsurgent warfare, and its earliest phase uh, is what we know as the Phoenix Program. Yes. Uh, Developed by the CIA, which is, of course, one of these, you know, shadow state detached paranational entities. And the Phoenix program was essentially an attempt to prove that you could use computer networks in real time to track supposed uh, Viet Cong double agents and uh, uh, informers and subversives and whatever. Uh and there, there's a story in, uh, you guys have had Yash Levine on the show before. There's a, a great story in his book, Surveillance Valley, about this mm. guy going into one of the Phoenix program's headquarters and seeing this big glass screen with the entire Ho Chi Minh trail depicted in real time on it. And it just blowing his mind. And uh, the Phoenix program kidnapped, uh, tortured, and either disappeared or murdered something between forty and 80,000 Vietnamese over just a couple of years. And um, in traditional military terms, it was a complete failure. They yeah. admitted years later, they, they barely gained a single piece of actionable intelligence out of it. But in technological terms, it wasn't just a success. It was a revolutionary yeah, success. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because these guys had taken computer networks that were essentially kind of like, you know, the homework projects of people like ARPA and their contractors at Stanford and MIT and all that, and proven we can take these things out into the field. We can use them in real time. You know, we can take small, relatively portable, relatively easily repairable computer models and set up these networks, use them in real time, and construct a uh, a counterinsurgency war completely separate from and parallel to the major war effort. So, and- so something something that strikes me about this uh, is is because I I've, I've sort of encountered that view about the Phoenix Project before as well. I mean that 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 it basically is the only view of it that makes sense. Um, you know, there's all, there's this sort of generally uh, held concept that war really advances technology that 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 when whenever there is a major war there are leaps and bounds in technology both military and military technology that has civilian applications as well and what we did see with vietnam and and with the phoenix program in vietnam is really like leaps and bounds gained by these these people who wanted to use computers and technology uh in in warfare applications but also sort of the technology of torture as well and and, and yes. you know with the phoenix program in particular one of the first um, testimonials I read about it, or one of the first sort of first person, uh, you know, accounts I read of the Phoenix Project, uh, talks about a man who has his genitals electrocuted. 
right? And having your genitals electrocuted is, of course, torture involving the genitals is a long-held tradition by uh, by by people. That is that from gelding to you know to making people eunuchs uh, in the Ottoman times to capture. Yeah, it's 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 a it's a famously used quite a lot. Um, but that particular electroshock on the genitals thing. I can actually sort of trace back from the Phoenix program to the Paladin group to uh, to to Otto Scorzani to to Colonia Dignidad. Um, it is uh, it's it's uh, that sticks out to me a lot. Yeah, and I'm I am I am just about to connect these things and tie them together. <laughs> yes, uh, because no, pro- no, there's no rush, baby. Because <laughs> um, what we see after the Phoenix program is not sort of, oh, this didn't fucking work, let's tear it down. It's, I mean, this didn't work in this application, but it's got all kinds of other potential applications. And people from the Phoenix program, overwhelmingly, they do not just go back to the United States and become CIA bureaucrats. They become consultants in American Mm. police departments. (laughs) Uh, Particularly uh, the LAPD and the Chicago PD. Mm. Uh, they spread out beyond that, but those were, I believe, the two first. And they teach these police departments, mm-hmm. basically, here's how to install uh, a massive computer network that keeps track of all kinds of people. And they can be, you know, criminals whom you're looking for, who have committed a crime and you're trying to, you know, arrest. Or they can be people whom you simply don't like. You know, like... Uh, like John Ehrlichman, uh, one of Nixon's right-hand men, has said over and over again, they started the war on drugs as a way to criminalize being black or being a leftist Mm -hmm. because they realized they couldn't literally do that, so they had to do it through something else. Well, the war Um, on drugs, too. I mean, it's, 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 you know, I'm sure some of our readers have read The Great Heroin Coup, uh, which is a fantastic book. Um, The war on drugs is all part, and like, I mean directly part of this whole Spider Network stuff, too. It's yeah, it's, absolutely. it's it's all the same war. That's just like a, yeah. a it's not even really a different front. I mean, really the only reason drugs come into it is because that's a way of financing CIA black operations. Uh and right, I, yeah. I don't mean black as in operations by CIA against black people, although that also is what I mean. <laughs> that too, yeah. Quick, I too, I want to add that like there is a kind of bizarre popular narrative out there that at least I've encountered that counterinsurgency tactics came to like local police departments fairly recently. Like, and I mean, I've seen people put forth like, you know, pieces suggesting within the last like 10, 15 years. And that like, you know, is, or at least, you know, maybe they say since 9-11. And I just want to like, you know, we should highlight that, like, no, actually, you know, it, both insurgency and counterinsurgency tactics, and maybe we should explain, like, why we say both at the same time, but, like, that that has been, that the, the, the kind of development that we're talking about after or, like, during Vietnam is, like, a broader development, not just through the world, but also in the United States domestically as well, as it was, um, like you you say, being used against populations that you know, were considered insurgent, either, you know, uh, African-Americans or communists or, you know, what have you, right? 
And it's like a much, much larger, like deeper history at work here. Yeah, I think I think the Vietnam War is much more accurately looked at as the Vietnam front of a much larger war. Mm. Yeah. Um, The same way I said in the last episode that I think the Third World War already happened. Mm. Yeah, I've been thinking about that a lot. And it was literally the Third World War. (laughs) The Third World War also happened in the Third World. Yeah, 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 yeah. In the same way, the Vietnam mm. front of the Vietnam War was only one of the many, many things that it was used for. And I'm guessing what people are talking about when they say, you know, uh, American police departments have only been trained in counterinsurgency recently. Some of them may, you know, not not mean ill. Some of them may think they're telling the truth. And probably what they're talking about is the fact that uh, police departments received a bunch of money and training for counterterrorism. Sure, shit. right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. and also uh, we're, we're often flown to Israel for training. Right, right. Well. Yeah, they got a whole lot of Israeli training after September Yeah, Look, yes. Like you guys, uh, you just talked about in your recent show about uh, the Department of Homeland Security that uh, it's a department with uh, basically no oversight, no particular mandate for what the fuck it's supposed to do. And mm. Well, secure just, the homeland. Okay, <laughs> but it loves securing some homeland ass. Yeah, yeah but I guess I just uh, want to say I think it's worth pushing, like, even while that might be literally true what you point out, and I don't, you know, contest that. That is true. But there's, it's worth, like, us pushing back on that, I think, because I think it, it you know, it, it reveals a much larger story here that we kind of need to tease out. Well, police departments in America have essentially been at war with segments of, of American society, sometimes in greater numbers, sometimes in smaller numbers, since the inception of, of police departments, right? I mean, it's very, it's the, 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 the you know, sort of general goal of a, of a body of armed men no longer uh, uh, the same as the general population or police department is to enforce the rule of a class. Like, that's their, you know, general task there. Um, But as certain segments of the populace become, like, more highly illegal than other segments, right? Like, I I think the greatest point was probably in the early 20th century where you had black people who had always been sort of uh, criminalized by by, uh, American police departments. But then you also had, like, Italians and stuff, and you added them in. And then sort of receded and then uh then then when the the 60s came about uh you had you had the left again i mean they, they have always been as well but like once more sort of at the forefront you had the left and and black people uh essentially at war with with pds especially in many of these major cities i mean the black panthers in oakland would talk about how they viewed the police department as an occupying force in their neighborhoods right yeah. And and the way the police department acted there is almost exactly the same as as for instance uh, American troops act in Iraq, right? You know they'll run you off the road, they'll arrest you without reason, they'll burst in your house at three a.m. and absolutely nothing will happen to them. So it is this like pattern of 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 counterinsurgency and insurgency tactics that are used there. Absolutely, I I, I think a lot of people know by now that. The, the genesis of most of our modern police departments was as runaway slave patrols. And uh, when we, or when I rather talk about the, um, the Phoenix program, sort of uh, men involved in training, men involved in, in teaching police departments uh, this kind of technology and these sorts of techniques, uh, I'm talking specifically about that, about the conversion of a police department from a you know community safety patrol mm-hmm. into a group that views itself 
as an occupying army mm-hmm. and views the people it polices explicitly as enemies. Well, that's, right, there right, is yeah. no, there is no, it is no fucking coincidence that that both bullshit ass fucking dumbass soldiers use that fucking uh, that Roman helmet bullshit and so yeah. the, or, the, or the Punisher skull. The symbolism there is the exact same. And now at this point, even the uniforms are essentially the same in many of these places. I mean, you look at those pictures of of, of DHS of troops in fucking Portland; they are dressed yeah. as soldiers. You know, they the have fuck? mag dump pouches. Like, what the fuck is camo hiding them from? Concrete? Exactly. Literally, if you wore blue, it would be better camouflage. Yeah. Why are they wearing <laughs> camouflage? What the fuck sense does that make? It makes them because, stand out more. Yeah, because we have we have taught these police departments to essentially we have a a foreign service that does the job of policing in countries that, for one reason or another, we have seen fit to invade. And then we have a domestic police service that does the job of of policing uh, the, uh, shall we say, the roustabout communities <laughs> that are, are regrettably included within our own polling. Mm-hmm. And, and this goes back, Liz, like you were just saying, you know, the, the idea that uh, police departments have only recently received, you know, counterinsurgency training is absolutely not true. This goes back a long, long way. And there's a reason that when you look at people who were, let's say, once involved in black power or black nationalist movements, like Huey Newton, a lot of them end up dead in things, uh, in, in, in events supposedly related to drugs. Mm-hmm. Now, why do we think that might be? You know, <laughs> what, what is it, uh, what, what connects these two things? What suspicions do we have when people who are uh, involved in trying to, you know, gain not just some sort of rhetorical power for the black community, but some kind of actual political and social power for the black community end up dead in precisely the kind of operation that one of the main assistants to the president is admitting, yes, we over-criminalize this as a way to attack black people and leftists. Well, look at, look at, look at, you know, the, you know, famously a lot of the leaders in the Ferguson protest ended up dead in circumstances that are uh, substantially less than than believable, uh, yep. or at least one of the greatest uh, series of coincidences that 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 I've I've really ever encountered. Um, and several of those were dead because of drug overdoses. Uh, particularly, yeah. I believe an uh, an Arab guy who who was a leader during the protest movement too uh, overdosed and died just very suddenly. Um, yeah, and so it's like like, like you're saying, it's like they they Vietnam was a testing ground. It was a testing ground for this for this 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 revolutionary warfare. And it was a testing ground for this this revolutionary form of warfare, the Phoenix program. Yes. And then every American war since then has been. Yeah. Right, know, the, exactly. No accident that we talk about Gulf War syndrome. But uh to to take it back to the immediate continuity of, of Chile and the Pinochet coup, one reason that I mentioned this um well, actually, let me give two reasons that I mentioned this. Uh, one, one sort of you know classically historical materialist, and one less so. Uh, the CIA, ARPA, the DIA, the Defense Department. You know, by the time we are moving out of Vietnam, 
they are very, very aware that uh, relatively portable mobile computers and computer networks are going to be at the very forefront of war fighting from that point on. And one of the things that makes computers that were then modern uh, relatively mobile and portable is that rather than being based on hand-wired circuit boards, uh, Yem Chomsky will know all about this from synth shit. Uh, they are based on printed circuit boards, uh, which are smaller and which can be made in vast quantities automatically. And printed circuit boards, um, instead of wiring, they use what are called traces. And traces are sort of little pathways that are cut into the circuit board, uh, usually by light in, in a process called photo machining. And they have to be coated with a metal that has just the right amount of conductivity uh, to conduct electrical signals between components on the circuit board. Uh, the ideal semiconductor metal for those traces is copper. Mm-hmm. And Chile, uh, I don't know if it still does, but certainly at the time, had the most massive copper deposits in the world. And guess what Allende nationalized? One of the very first things he took from the foreign capitalists was the yep. copper mines. Yeah, you can look and see. There's still uh, a copper mine there called La Minera Escondida that I would encourage anyone to look up. It's fucking unbelievable. It's like a uh, a Sumerian ziggurat dug <laughs> backward down into the ground. I mean, it's just an astonishing structure. And Allende nationalizes copper, so all of a sudden... All this metal that we're going to need for the future of American war fighting and the entire future of you know American personal computing and and uh, mass production electronics becomes a lot more expensive. So that's uh, one sort of historical materialist access to, to look at it. Uh, and the other thing that I cannot help but notice is that when we get into the Pinochet regime and Colonia Dignidad. And specifically, the, the sorts of techniques for interrogation and torture that the DINA, the National Intelligence Directorate, used there. I look at these things and I see an almost exact blueprint for the American torture and uh, extraordinary rendition program yeah. Absolutely. after Absolutely. September 11th. And we know for a fact for a fact, that the CIA is directly in contact with Dina during all of this, and not just via Michael Townley, uh, whom we mentioned the previous time. Michael Townley is, relatively speaking, something of like a curiosity. Mm. He's not, not sort of a major figure in CIA history. Yeah. There's another guy who is, and um, even people who know some CIA history pretty well uh, will not necessarily know this guy, you know. You got your Alan Dulles's and Richard Bissell's and Frank Wisner's and the major figures. Anyone who knows my show knows I'm a spaz for all this. But <laughs> um, there's a guy who is not nearly as famous named David Atlee Phillips. Yep. And, and David Atlee Phillips, if you look at his official CV, he was just a bureaucrat. He was just a station officer, uh, primarily in Central and South America for his entire career. And yet he's one of only, I believe, six people ever to win the CIA's Distinguished Service Medal. 
the highest honor that the CIA bestows on any of his officers. If he were really just a station bureaucrat, there's no That's, fucking There's no chance. way that would happen. No, not mm-hmm. in the world. And, he was um, he was involved. I mean, I, not to not to maybe get ahead of it. I believe wasn't he involved with Jam Wave or am I fucking crazy? Yes, yes. Okay. He he was in charge of running the anti Castro Cuban group. There we go. Yeah, I'm looking it up. Yeah. Alpha sixty six. So yes, Alpha, he was. Alpha sixty six that used Jam Wave as a kind of uh, meeting point. Uh, before that, he was one of the major architects of the 1954 Guatemalan coup against Jacobo Arbenz. Mm-hmm. And um, speaking of J.M. Wave and Alpha 66, for those of you who have never heard these terms, uh, J.M. Wave was a Miami CIA station. Out of that, the, we should add, out of the University of Miami. Yeah, yes. that's actually this a crucial thing, part, this that it had, was in, in the university. Yeah. Yeah, like fully, and recruited out of the university openly. Yeah. They also had, I was astounded to learn, because, you know, all these places have giant budgets, but often they're sort of off-the-books budgets. You don't really know what they are. This was one of the most important stations in, in the CIA during the Cold War, um, and it had a budget of 50 to to $100 million a year. Yeah, enormous. In, like, the enormous. 70s. And it was run by Frank Shackley, who was one of the big fucking swinging dick, you know, Real son of a guys. bitch. Real son yeah. of a bitch. Horrible bastard. And um, Alpha 66 was, uh, pre the assassination of John F. Kennedy, was one of the most sort of brash, anti-Fidel Castro groups. Uh, It would run um, coastal raids on Cuba and then go back to New York and call press conferences and brag about them. Mm -hmm. And uh, later, after Kennedy was killed, Antonio Vesiana the head of Alpha 66, admitted that actually the group was entirely created and controlled by the CIA. And that uh, the guy who ran it was someone known only to him as Bishop. Mm. And he was supposed to testify to the uh, House Select Committee on Assassinations in 1975 before getting shot two times. Uh, he must have slipped. He had, uh, clearly, <laughs> cleaning his gun. He, yeah, he actually didn't die, uh, but he didn't testify. <laughs> yeah, that'll, forward, that'll put the. That's fear how you deal. save your brother. You're like, all right, man. I yeah. hate that I got to do this, but look, we all know what the deal is. You're not going to testify, but I'm going to like shoot you a couple times, <laughs> but you're going to live. I got yeah, you, bro. Catch it in the knees. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But so fast forward forty years. And he admits that he knows for a fact that Bishop was David Atlee Phillips. He identifies a Bishop as Phillips from a blind photo array. And he says not only did he meet with Phillips in Dallas just before the Kennedy assassination, he also saw Phillips meeting with Lee Harvey Oswald in Dallas just before the Kennedy assassination. Mm. I personally think that... um, David Atlee Phillips was probably the guy coordinating the entire operation to kill Kennedy on the ground in Dallas in November 63. Not the only CIA guy there. There were dozens of CIA guys there, but, but the one in charge of the entire thing. And, and, and Phillips was also involved in the overthrow and not assassination, but essentially assassination by suicide of Allende. Yes. The, the reason I mention him is that David Atlee Phillips 
was the CIA's point man uh, in negotiating between the CIA itself and the, the putative Pinochet coup become Pinochet regime. And uh, he was, in fact, uh, accused by Veciana and by, I believe, um, Manuel Contreras, the former head of Dina. Yep. Of being the guy who set up the assassination of Orlando Letelier. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, in, no. It was uh, the assassination of Orlando Letelier was, which we talked about last episode for those who are, are breaking the rules and listening to this one before the last one. Mm-hmm. Uh, was actually done along with a string of other sometimes extremely audacious uh, terrorist attacks by groups of Cuban Cuban exiles. And and the way, you know, anybody who really knows even a little bit about Cold War sort of shadow, you know, history, the way that the Cuban exiles were were taken in with, with open arms by the CIA and sort of spread out to the wind like pollen is is incredible. I mean, these guys, you will find Cubans in basically every country uh that 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 has a target that the CIA wants to assassinate from 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 the early 60s until probably until the 90s. Yeah, um, absolutely. I it's, I think- it's incredible. I mean, they, they were they were involved along with Michael Townley uh uh of in the killing of of Orlando Letelier. I I think for example that um if if you know, I don't know who killed JFK, but if if you ask me my number one candidate, one of the two guys I would mention would be a Cuban named David Morales Sanchez, uh, who also worked at JM Wave. I believe was the assistant director of of JM Wave. Well, well, you you talked about last episode how there's these sort of nexuses, how there's these physical centers of all of this yeah. stuff and how, how Colonia Dignidad is one of them and jam wave that little mm-hmm. office or not even little, that office they had in Miami is really another one of these power centers that, that yes. these, these, these sort of brain trusts, these hives. Yeah. And, and a lot of Cubans who uh, first came to uh, America at all. And then particularly the CIA, um, via, you know, sometimes just these two-bit operations. A lot of uh, Cuban refugees came to the CIA via a fucking cab stand in Miami. Yep. A guy who who was a taxi cab dispatcher. And if he found out you hated Castro enough, would be like, I know a guy who pays for that. <laughs> um, uh, these guys came to the CIA and found out, hey, you can get paid for... You know, if if you're serious, if you're a real bad motherfucker, you can get paid for killing people. And if you're uh, more casual, you can get paid just for driving a car from fucking Miami to Los Angeles. Yeah. You know, just little, little things. Or to New Orleans, as it may have been. <laughs> Absolutely. You can get paid to hand a briefcase to Jack Ruby. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And so... Or even to shoot it. Yeah. Either way. Uh so Cubans who were exiles from, you know, the revolution became, as you were saying, kind of the go-to men for the CIA mm-hmm. for a mm-hmm. long, long time. And the CIA uses whoever is at hand. And I'm guessing at this point in history, there are significantly fewer, you know, Cuban CIA. Not even, yes. you wouldn't call them agents or operatives, but just assets. Yeah. Uh, but for a long time there. I mean, from from the late 50s to, as you're saying, probably the 90s, uh, Cuban refugees from the Castro regime 
were kind of the the errand men for the entire CIA, especially yeah. in the South and Southeast. Yeah, I mean, a- a- everywhere. I mean, you really, like, they pop up in basically every sort of operation you could ever imagine. And yeah. are like, uh, it's sort of in this network we talk about, they are like, you see them often used as foot soldiers and really like mm-hmm. shock troops too. Like they're, they, 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 they put them on to do some really terrible stuff. But you mentioned Michael Vernon Townley earlier, and I think we got to get to Colonia Dignidad for at least a second in this episode. Michael Vernon Townley, as we discussed in the, the, the last episode, uh, was a, a son of, I believe, a Ford Motors executive, um, mm-hmm. which actually ties into something else I want to talk about a little later involving Dietrich Eckhart. Um, but uh, but he, he was an agent for the DINA, an agent for the CIA, and he was one of the people that helped turn Colonia Dignidad into essentially a black site. And yeah. so, so where we got last time was we had Allende, you know, he, 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 a popular elected socialist leader, you know, on the, the, what he called the Chilean road to socialism. And actually, it's funny, you mentioned computers in that context earlier. Uh, for those listening, look up Project Cybersyn. Project Cybersyn. Sin spelled S-Y-N. Uh, it is, it is the, this, this really astounding project that, that the Chilean government under Allende did uh, to, I don't really understand it. It's like very nerdy, but it's basically about, I believe, management via computers. Um, for instance, when there was a large CIA-instigated trucker strike during the, uh, during the, the Allende uh, government, they were able to coordinate using Project Cybersyn uh, how to actually get food and supplies throughout throughout the cities there? Um, yeah, they were they were very very. Allende uh, uh, and his government were very into what uh, you know some of the Bolsheviks like to call scientific socialism. Yes, yes. absolutely. And, and that was part of the reason they scared the shit out of us because mm. we hadn't yet. You know, now we have this model of uh, crippling countries through sanctions and trade embargoes. And then forcing them to accept IMF or World Bank loans that completely destroy their economies and national sovereignty for the rest of their existence. But um, by the time Allende became the president of Chile, we hadn't quite perfected that model yet. And he scared us so badly because it was working. Yes. He, he was actually doing it, you know? And, and, and that, I think, should not be forgotten, that this is not just, you know, some kind of upstart socialist. This is a guy who actually was giving the entire world proof. That yes, it can be done. Uh, the, the same way that the, um, the Algerians scared the shit out of the French. Because, not so much because of who they were, but because they made it clear that actually, yes, you can rise up against your colonial overlords and kick them the fuck out of your country. It can be done. And yeah. in, the, in the same way, the Chileans scared us. Because they were making it clear, yeah, you, you can have uh, a social democratic government. And instead of doing the thing that a lot of these governments do, where they, they start as kind of social democracies and promise to become you know, more socialist, but actually they drift more and more authoritarian mm. because of, because of you know, sabotage within the government and American influence and all that kind of thing. You actually can have a government that starts as, as a social democracy. And then goes further and further left. Yes, exactly. Like, 
like it actually planned to do. Well, Allende was also, I mean, I don't know if we should talk about him for a little bit, because I don't know how familiar our listeners are with him and the kind of like, you know, the Allende government. But he was incredibly um, agile and he had a lot, I mean, much, you know, you mentioned the Bolsheviks, very different situation in terms of negotiating different kind of powers and figuring out how to balance many different facets. But Allende was also having to deal with a lot within um, different, you know, trade unions, within different factories, within different parts of the government, and was really able to, I mean, I, I mean, I think pretty seamlessly at first manage a lot of different um, kind of competing powers in yeah. a way that was that it's very impressive. Yeah, there's there's an old interview with him, I think from 1971 that that Jacobin ha- or no, it might be from 1972 that Jacobin has translated on their website. Um where he actually talks explicitly about that, about how he he is able to sort of mm. trying to manage all these different factions and, and there's a really heartbreaking part where he talks about how he hopes he's neutralized sort of the military mm. uh from from being against him. Um because I don't know if we talked about this in the last episode, but the military in Chile, as opposed to uh, basically every other South American country, actually had a doctrine of neutrality when it came to the government. He was very, very smart about that. The, the guy that I have mentioned before, Carlos Prats, that uh, Michael Townley tried to kill, uh, he was both the head of the Chilean military and Allende's foreign minister, and then uh, interior minister, and I believe also minister of defense. Uh, he very early on included the military in his administration as a way to defuse, you know, possible opposition from them. Which is like, to be clear, <laughs> if you are if you if you undertake a socialist project in a country like Chile, that's probably what you got to do. Unfortunately, Allende did make Pinochet. The head of the military there, um, which, to be clear, like Allende, I mean, I have, you know, I, I, I have a slightly different politics than Allende had, uh, but but I, it's it's difficult to see what else he could have done there. Um, you know, I'm no expert exactly on the the political wranglings of the Chilean military around that time, but but Pinochet seemed to me like a Franco figure. Uh, which is somebody that you would not expect to be leading something like this, yeah. uh, a sort of bland, uh, you know, sort of simple guy who obviously is is a right winger, but but not the sort of person you'd expect to lead an uprising. But nevertheless, yeah. an uprising does well. I shouldn't call it an uprising. A classic military coup does happen in 1973. Um, you know, the presidential palace is surrounded, and uh, and in a in a moment reeking of very depressing symbolism, uh, Allende kills himself using a rifle that Fidel Castro had given him. And uh, pretty soon, basically that night it begins, uh, left-wingers are rounded up. They are taken to a giant soccer stadium in Santiago. Uh, they, I think around 45,000 people are arrested. Um, uh, not that night, but many thousands that night and then over the course of the next year. And And before... You know, things get going very far. Uh, they start getting taken to Colonia Dignidad. So Colonia Dignidad had actually sort of perfected a regime of torture 
uh, and interrogation even before the 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 Pinochet government um, overthrew Allende, or excuse me, the Pinochet junta overthrew Allende. Uh, I want to I want to tell you guys a, a little illustration about a guy named Franz Barr. It's a pretty good illustrative example of that. So I, I I feel like this guy actually might be possibly named after Hugo Barr, which was a minister that uh, Paul Schaefer, the head of Colonia Dignidad, had met during the fifties and was sort of his acolyte of. But this was a Chilean kid adopted at age ten by the Colonials. Within a few years, like I think when he gets to his sort of early mid teens. Paul Schaefer personally starts to take a dislike to him. Uh, remember that Paul Schaefer is, of course, an inveterate pedophile. So whether that has something to do with it, I don't know. I mean, certainly it cannot be absent from the conversation. Anyways, one day uh, Barr is at work in the workshop. You know, I, I, I don't know specifically what his job is, but I'm sure clanging away with a hammer at something. When he is confronted by a group of adult colonials who accuse him of stealing a set of keys to a dorm. He denies this because later, in later interviews he gave to Bruce Falconer, who has a really excellent article about, about Colonia Dignidad and the American Scholar. Uh, Barr says that the Colonia surrounded him and then beat his skull open with electrical cables. He spent the next 31 years in the hospital at Colonia Dignidad, which, by the way, was getting state funding until the mid-90s. They kept him hidden in an upstairs part of the hospital. Okay. You know, that's, that's not very unusual. But every morning, they would wake him up. He would be butt naked. They would take away all his clothes and his shoes so that he couldn't escape. And then they would give him a series of injections and then a plate full of uh, about, he says, 12 to 15 pills and a piece of bread. Uh, he had to take all of these, wait a little while for all whatever drugs. He didn't know what the drugs were for those drugs to kick in. They would give him his clothes back and then he would be marched to work by armed guards to work in a carpentry shop where he worked on heavy machinery in an enclosed space, according to Bruce Falconer. The pills, the ejections made him really slow. I mean, I assume everybody listening to this podcast has taken some pills and done some injections before. So you know what I'm talking about. Although I don't think that they were giving this guy fentanyl. Um, anyways, he had to work there all day. His meals were given to him there. And then he was forced to work until about 3 a.m. each night. Uh, he told Falconer about even worse fates, which are room nine to, and fourteen in the hospital, where uh, where where rebels, which is rebels, is what they called people who rebelled, uh, rebelled, excuse me, against Ben's Paul Schaefer. They were they were uh, given shock treatments by a apparently emotionless uh, female physician. Now, there is also testimony, and so this was happening. This has been happening since the colony basically started. They've been perfecting these methods, and many of these methods, you might recall, especially a lot of these you know, injection methods, taken straight. I mean, Paul Schaefer was a medic in the Wehrmacht during World War II. I'm sure he encountered these sort of things there. Certainly, I'm sure he read the literature. Uh, there are left wingers who were abducted during the Pinochet regime, who were taken by Dina agents. To Colonia Dignidad. This is from a UN report in 1977. The detainees' heads are covered with leather hoods, which are stuck to their faces with substances that are supposedly chemicals. In these cells, interrogations are carried out through electronic equipment, including loudspeakers and microphones, while the detainees are tied naked to metal frames to receive electric shocks. I'm sure many people listening to this will recall scenes out of Abu Ghraib, right? Absolutely. And scenes from the war on terror. 
This is where these techniques were, were especially that really haunting technique of the leather hood. You know, the man who's Mm -hmm. standing there with the, with the sort of, uh, the, the, the peaked hood on with his arms outstretched and things attached to him. We can read about that going on from a CIA linked black site at a pedophile colony in Chile from 1977. Yeah, I, I I think it's it's worth pointing out that the CIA, there's no way they didn't know about every fucking aspect of this. It's it's just not possible. That the drugging you're talking about, I think there's an excellent chance that that was a way for the CIA to undertake some MK Ultra research that they yeah, couldn't absolutely. get done in the United States. Yeah, I was going to bring that up. Things that weren't possible to you know get done in the U.S. they could they could do in Chile. And also about the um, the public part of it, the soccer stadiums that you were talking about, they, they use those soccer stadiums not just as places to keep prisoners, but as public spectacles. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a guy named Victor Jara that uh, anyone who might be Chilean listening to this will, will know of. He was, uh, people called him the Bob Dylan of Chile. He, he yeah. was like a protest Very famous singer. folk singer. Yeah, and Victor Jara um, was taken in in one of the very first raids that brought all these thousands of people into a soccer stadium and very publicly in front of uh, everybody else had uh, each of his fingers individually broken uh, before he was killed. Uh, there's a, a, those of you who know the band Calexico uh, did a song called Los Manos de Victor Jara. That's, that's all about that. Um, so I, I, I think it's, it's important to emphasize the, the sort of spectacular aspect mm. of, of the, the public acts of this regime, and also important to emphasize that, as, as you say, these things were not happening you know, separately just in some sequestered little dark corner of the world. This is, this is not you know, boondock shit. This is stuff that is being reported on and is uh, directly known about to the intelligence agencies of, you know, the first world. Uh, And I expect, as I said earlier, that they were using this situation to get away with different kinds of research and experimentation that were not plausible for them inside the boundaries of the United States or, be it said, possibly Britain. Possibly France. Who knows? Right. Well, well, that's one thing that Liz talked about on the last episode is the shock doctrine sort of economic model that was brought to Chile, too. So at this point, we're seeing underneath literally subterranean level, we are seeing experiments going on on human beings to, to torture with drugs, etc. And then, like Liz talked about, on the top, we are seeing this economic experiment in sort of mm-hmm. ultra capitalism. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I would suggest that these are all, I think what we're all getting at is that this is all tied together. Like we say, if we can understand this as a proving ground, right, then we understand that actually the economic experiments and the, you know, MK Ultra and the torture and the black site and the insurgency tactics and the warfare tactics, all of this is, these are all like part of the same phenomenon, right? Yeah. This is all part of the same project, and it's a project that doesn't begin but starts to become tested 
and, um, you know, messed with and, and tinkered with in, you know, in Colonia Dignidad in Chile before it gets rolled out elsewhere, including into the United States, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think the, um, the obvious and direct continuity between the kind of torture that was being used at Colonia Dignidad, the, the thing that really haunts me, the thing I can hardly bear to think about is the fucking dogs. Yeah. The, the, what they talked about. With the, I mean, dogs that were trained to mutilate people's genitals. Mm. I mean, just horrific shit. And, and particularly the practice of extraordinary rendition. Mm-hmm. I find horrifying the idea of, you know, having a hood thrown over you, you're thrown in the back of a car, like say is happening in fucking Portland right yeah, now. Exactly. And you are brought out somewhere you've never seen before. And you have no idea where you are. Uh, that's horrific to me. And the fact that they, there is continuous and direct CIA awareness of what is going on in this place, right? And we're talking 74, 75. Um, I mean, the Dina, notably, was so horrific that even under Augusto Pinochet, it had to be discontinued in 1977. Yes, yeah, right, 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 It was right. too there, fucked up. Yeah, there was enough public outcry about it. But... but I mean, we can't really take seriously the idea that it stopped in 1977. No, no, no. The thing is, the thing is, though, with all of this stuff is like, like, you know, they might have stopped COINTELPRO. They might have stopped the Phoenix program. They might have stopped all of these things. But that's because they've been able to refine them. Like, it, right. it sheds its skin and, and, and takes on one that's sleeker and more adept to, 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 to react to the present moment, right? Exactly. Right. You brought up the rendition program and it's so, I mean, it's so, you know, we're talking about the Iraq war. Like, I mean, it's so reminiscent because, when, you know, when they were doing the, uh, you know, the reports on what was happening in the Iraq war, right? And they come back and they're looking at these rendition programs. And what is the CIA doing? And I can't believe that they're doing this or whatever. It's so, they treat these things as if, I mean, there's no digging into any larger history, right? The idea, they kind of believe on the face, oh, well, the CIA didn't totally know. They didn't totally know. Yeah. As if they haven't been working on and exporting these same tactics for the last 45 years. Right. There's, there's always this bullshit that a few people went wrong. Yeah. You know, a few, a few people went mad with power. And, and to me, what, what we see... When you look at something happening in Chile in 1974, and then something happening under U.S. jurisdiction in Iraq in 2003, that to me does not say they had an idea and then sat on it for 29 years and then brought it back. <laughs> no, it's yeah. like generations were trained. Right. That says to me they were working on different versions of this throughout the world from yeah. one point to another. And I can only imagine the sorts of things we were doing in concert with, say, Colombian drug cartels. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, we know Iran we know Contra. that we know that Ghislaine Maxwell was shooting uh, shooting rockets from helicopters with them. Oh, fucking unbelievable! Uh, and the timelines on that even line up. You know, she probably yeah. did really do that. I mean, the things we were doing with this is a story that. I find just unbelievable that no one knows, but the uh, Mexican newspaper El Universal, and it was either 2012 or 2013, uh, had a story about a Mexican DEA agent 
who admitted that the DEA and the Sinaloa cartel had been working together from the late years of the George H.W. Bush administration and the early years of Clinton, all the way up to what was then the new second term of Obama. <laughs> that they, they knew everything Sinaloa was doing. Yeah. And in exchange for, for letting Sinaloa operate how they wanted to, uh, Sinaloa gave them information on all the other drug cartels. And um, you can connect that directly to the attempt to let basically Sinaloa fight a war with the Zetas cartel yeah. in 2013 that left, you know, just unfathomable amounts of bodies strewn across that country. I mean, in, in the United States, if we have 500 murders in a city in a year, it's apocalyptic. And in, I believe it was 2013, Juarez had 3,000. Just yeah. fucking unbelievable. Yeah. That's, that story came out. It was widely disseminated. You know, El Universal is not a conspiracy paper. It's a pretty big newspaper. And that just came and went. Nobody cared. Uh, so the fact that, you know, we have this thing, we start doing in the 70s and then it magically reappears in the early 2000s. Right. We didn't stop doing it in between. Uh, we, yeah. we, just did, we just did it in places and in forms that haven't been dug up yet. Well, you know, you mentioned like other places that where, you know, these different tactics were getting tested out. And I feel like we should, I mean, we, you know, on the flip side of, I mean, not that this wasn't happening there, but on of like, you know, torture and rendition programs. I mean, you have like massive biological and chemical research happening in Africa. And oh, that absolutely. being and that being one of the sites where where that becomes, um, you know, uh, I, I mean, it's 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 <laughs> really shocking. The programs that were happening, not just out of South Africa, but, you know, all along the African coast. I believe it was in Rhodesia that uh, one of the yes. security yeah. agencies, I can't remember which one, but a security agency that we had an official, you know, friendly relationship with, uh, they started a supposed aid program. And what they were actually doing was testing uh, South Africa. rat poison. Yeah, it was thallium and something like, I can't remember the name, prothorian, something like that. Uh, various insecticides, pesticides, basically, on on black populations by uh, coating uh, food and uh, clothes and medicine with them, and then handing them out as as supposed you know charitable donations or or state kind of emergency. Well, there, there's that there's that there's that documentary about Dag Hammarskjöld too, where yeah. the uh, documentarian sort of encountered that that agency in South Africa, that extra state agency. Yeah. Uh, that was that was doing AIDS medication um or passing out AIDS medication throughout Africa and where the actual members of the group now claim that they were actually purposely injecting Africans with AIDS as a, AIDS as a form of biological warfare. And so yeah. like we actually even see the biological stuff happening in Colonia Dignidad itself. Like in 74, Schaefer, or Schaefer meets with Pinochet at the colony. So a year after Pinochet even comes into power, not even a year, because he came into power in September 1973. Uh, he, he, he links, he links, uh, links Schaefer up with a guy named Gerhard Merton. So I don't know if I mentioned him last episode, who is an oh, arms yeah. trafficker who dealt in bioweapons 
for the Pinochet regime. Uh, Schaefer and, and, and Mertens work with a guy named Eugenio Berrios, who was a chemist for Dina, which... If you can imagine, that is not yeah. a combination of words that uh, no. that that bring pleasant things to mind. Who supplied Pinochet with fucking sarin gas and other chemical weapons? And you know where they tested these weapons at Colonia Dignidad and at other sites. There's yeah, there's what? there's multiple testimonies from people saying that they witnessed basically like gassings, which of course bring to mind the gas chambers and, you know, uh, not even just the gas chambers, but the testing they did on human beings by Schaefer's friend, Dr. Mengele, uh, or perhaps friend, Dr. Mengele, uh, in, in camps like Dachau and Auschwitz and Buchenwald. Um, you know, th- there's this straight line that, 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 that tumbles along and it doesn't stop with the seventies or eighties. Like these no. things have, th- th- this, this snowball might have gotten smaller, might think it gets bigger at times. But this is still like we live in the world that this created, right? Like with all this stuff, we live in a world that that is that is colored by every single thing that happened in these places. Um, and 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 that's like that's something I, that's like the one thing I really want to impart from the series on people is like you know you talked about the extraordinary rendition program. I mean, you talk about look look at we got a guy like Eric Prince who's close to the president, whose whose sister is the secretary of education. Uh, you know, who pushes QAnon like we talked about the other episode. Like, these people are not like, this isn't some relic from the past. Many of the people involved in like the colony, et cetera, you know, Pinochet is dead. But but they're, they're like only physically dead. So they're spiritually still alive and their spirit inhabits like every crevice of our enemies. Yeah, they, I mean, I think you have to ask, first of all, okay, if we if we take... At, at its word that this is a, you know, a religious colony run by sort of an uh, eccentric German preacher. How the fuck do they have a chemical weapons laboratory? <laughs> and, exactly. And, and then, you know, you, you can draw a straight line from there to Gulf War syndrome. To, yeah. you know, the, the fact of us apparently testing chemical weapons not only on, you know, Iraqis and Kuwaitis, but on our own people. Yep. And... From there to our uh, continual use of depleted uranium mm-hmm. weapons, mm-hmm. those are literally, literally speaking, nuclear weapons. Yes, yeah, that's what they are. They're they not nuclear the bombs. Yeah, they, they, they're not. You know, atom bombs. They're not what people think of when they say nuclear weapons. But nuclear weapons is what they are, and we use those things fucking shamelessly and constantly. White phosphorus, Israel dropping on Gaza. You know this. Look up for for, li- for those listening. Look up birth defects in Fallujah, and oh, the, yeah. the U.S. government still totally denies it has anything to do with the astronomical rates of birth defects in Fallujah. I mean, like once you actually—I can't remember what the exact statistic is, but it is a high and sickening one. I mean, you talk about weapons. This is some of the stuff that they found in 2005. The police in Colonia Dig the Dead, 92 machine guns. 104 semi-automatic rifles, 18 anti-personnel mines, 18 cluster grenades, almost 2,000 hand grenades, 67 mortar mortar rounds, 176 kilograms of TNT, an unspecified number of rocket launchers, surface-to-air missiles, (laughs) and telescopic sites. Also found were German language instruction manuals and large quantities of ammunition. According to investigators, many of the weapons were of World War II vintage Others, such as grenades and the machine guns, appeared to have been produced in the Colonia's own facilities. Now, here's also what they found 
under Paul Schaefer's bed in a hidden compartment. Three pencils that could shoot 22 caliber rounds, two <laughs> equipped to fire darts, a dart shooting camera, and several shootable walking canes. Um, they also found a walker capable of delivering electric shock of, shock of 1,200 volts, but I actually can attest they literally do sell that at a smoke shop near my house also. <laughs> so that one's not that crazy. Me and my boys love to have an unspecified number of rocket launchers. Yeah. <laughs> how how fucking you, I, hard can those be to count? I, the, miss, <laughs> the missiles is... Exactly, yes, exactly. The it missiles was too is, many. Is, yeah, what, what gives me a, a bad vibe. I mean, we know for a fact that they had weapons factories there. You yeah, know? absolutely. And, and one thing that, that, that regimes like Pinochet's are known for is not generally allowing civilians to uh, have bomb-making factories. Yeah, and if, if you're a group like, say, CIA... That's got connections to to the Colonia already. That has been uh, a, a direct facilitator of its transition from you know a a kind of weirdo religious community to essentially a black site for the Pinochet regime. And let's say you want to manufacture some weapons, or you want to store some weapons, or you want to get some weapons moved from one place to another, and you don't want uh, shipping manifests. You don't want it on paper that a particular factory manufactured something. You don't want receipts for having mm-hmm. bought something. That's an excellent way to move things from place to place without anyone knowing about it. Same yeah. way the fucking you know, CIA used uh, Air America or Southern Air Transport to move drugs for years and years. This is a great way for that kind of group, not just the CIA, but the CIA as an example, to store and move weapons from place to place without it ever showing up on any kind of official record. Oh, yeah, this is ours, and we gave it to these people. Well, we, we do have a, 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 a high number of arms dealers in this story as well. I mean, we talked about in a previous episode, too, Klaus Barbie, the butcher of Lyon, oh, yeah. who, who himself was a man who, who, during his tenure as, I believe, the Gestapo chief in Lyon, France, uh, was a big proponent of sicking dogs on genitals. And one thing Colonia Dignidad had, like you mentioned, was a high number of Dobermans who, I mean, you know, there's a lot of German influence in Chile, but you don't really associate Dobermans with, you know, the beauty of the, uh, of the Chilean yeah. coast. Um, they, had, they had a giant number of Dobermans. And again, like all these instructions are in German. And we have, like of the weapons I was talking about earlier, and we have a lot of testimony too from prisoners there who, you know, black bagged, being shocked, being tortured, that they heard a man with a strange accent talking in Spanish that at first they took him to either be Portuguese or Brazilian, so a native Portuguese speaker, but then only later realized that the man was a German speaking Spanish. And he was directing the torturers. He was saying, oh no, you got it. And you know what he particularly went for a lot? He went for the testicles. And that's, I'm sorry to keep coming back to that. But but one torture person's eyewitness, or excuse me, an eyewitness report by one guy who'd been tortured there says Paul Schaefer specifically after days of torture, where the guy said, "I thought I was going crazy." You know, they douse him with warm water, then like freezing cold water. They they beat him. Obviously, attach electrodes everywhere on his body. Paul Schaefer kept pointing out over and over, and even punching him in the testicles. And and it's this sort of like. You know, Paul Schaefer called himself, you know, the permanent uncle, right? Like he was everybody's uncle he, uh, in, in, in the colony. Of course, he did not have any children of his own, but he raped others' children. Um, 
this sort of like obsession with the genitalia that he had is is as as you know listeners of the show will note we we are we've long connected that to the nazis we're obviously not the first to do so because there is a lot going on there as they say um but i've always been fascinated with with schaefer especially because schaefer Schaefer's like earliest, the earliest reported event of Schaefer's life was him poking his eye out with a fork in a very penetrative act, creating an extra cavity on himself. Uh, And and I think to me, that's like something that like really colors a lot of, of, of what I read about what he did there is, is not only this penetrative stuff, um, you know, this, this sort of like abhorrent penetration, but also this mutilation that he engaged in mutilating others. You talk about, you know, an Oedipus complex, and that's an Oedipus complex times two. You know, that's, yes. that's another level of Oedipus complex. And it's worth, you know, when we mention Klaus Barbie, uh, a lot of listeners who think of Nazis in Central and South America probably think of them hiding or on the run, whatever. Well, when the CIA got together Operation Condor, uh, essentially to coordinate uh, intelligence and operations, between uh, all of the the secret police and intelligence organizations in Central and South America, the Bolivian delegate to those conferences was Klaus Barbie. Klaus Barbie was practically in charge of Bolivia. I mean, that he was part of... He was one of the top officers of the secret police there. Yeah. Like, it wasn't a secret. People knew. So, uh, really, the theme of today's episode was was proving grounds and how yeah. how these things are not thought up in a you know in a university somewhere and then you know randomly applied discreetly with no connection to the past on the battlefields of Iraq and Afghanistan or in Portland. These things are tested over time. I mean, I think that's one thing that 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 Vincent's uh, book. Jakarta method really lays out really well is how a lot of this also came from Jakarta and how that had a direct connection to, to Chile too, uh, and and to Brazil. And, and that's really what we want to stress is because this, this spider network that we talk about is maybe a lot of these personalities are a thing of the past, but you live in the future that they created, right? And just because you've never seen Klaus Barbie walking down the street, just because you've never been taken to Colonia Dignidad doesn't mean that you don't live in a world that these men built. So I think, I don't know. To me, to me, it's like, I feel like people should act like that. But now, when you first started talking to me about coming on the show, one of the things you asked me is if I'd ever read, uh, uh, I can't remember which Philip K. Dick book it was, but something by Philip K. Dick. And I, I would summarize what we've said so far with a, a quote from a different Philip K. Dick book. The empire never ended. The empire never ended. The empire never ended. <laughs> yeah, I, I'd say we also live in a world that Philip K. Dick made as well. Yeah. It's a mixture of <laughs> Philip K. Dick and Adolf Hitler. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, thank you so much, Michael. Again, you can listen to Michael on his own podcast, Death is Around the Corner, uh, which, by the way, he talked about JFK. His JFK series, very good. Um, yeah, thank you so much. We will see you in part three.
Yeah, absolutely. It's been, as always, a privilege to talk to you guys. Thanks so much. I love how we um, started this saying, okay, we're going to get into really indignidad. And then we just ended up talking about Vietnam. And we didn't even get into Le Cirque, actually. I, wa- I was about to like interrupt and pause and be like, we got to talk about Le Cirque, but we're going to have to get into it maybe on people the next don't, one. People don't realize how much of motherfuckers the French are. <laughs> They're, oh, God. I mean, God, God. I mean, not, you know, not, not listeners to this, of course. But Jesus Christ, they, they have yeah. some, there's some real sons of bitches in that government. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, I have a, bl- this is, I love talking about this kind of bullshit. So this is, I mean, it's not bullshit, but this kind of shit. Yeah. And you know, good news is that we just went on for so long and all over the place that we're definitely doing part three because we got way more to discuss. <laughs> yeah. Even as if we're, if we even finish the history of Dignidad and, uh, You know, we might end up talking about some other things instead. We'll see. But we're so excited to do that. That'll be coming out, I think, next week. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I don't like to make promises, but most likely so. Yeah. Anyway, this has been fun. Yeah, let's sign off, baby. All right. Well, I'm Liz. My name is Brace, of course, joined by producer Young Chomsky. And we will see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.